You may be seated. Our first scripture reading is from the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3. As we preach through the book of Psalms, uh, we like to read from the opposite testament. And so we'll have Craig come and read for us from the book of Romans. Craig, if you would. Romans 3, 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sin. And so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. As mentioned, we're in, we're in a sermon series in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a collection of poems and prayers and even songs offered to God. Martin Luther said that the book of Psalms is like a little Bible. In it, we see truths about sin, redemption, and aspects of God's character. Today we find ourselves in Psalm 19, a wisdom psalm, which will tell us the goodness of God's word, how it revives our soul, and how it changes us. Before I introduce our guest preacher for today, we'll have Nathan come and read Psalm 19 for us. Nathan, if you would. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than golds, even much fine golds, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, 
In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This morning we have uh, Mason Bramer uh, bringing the word to us today. Mason is a friend of our church. Uh, Ben and I have the great privilege of playing basketball with Mason. He's a slick-handed, left-handed player. When he's off the court, he actually serves as the pastor of men's ministry at the Met. He's married to Susan, has two children, originally from the States, but really does love Ottawa. And so, Mason, thank you for being here. If you'd come up, I'd love to pray for you before you preach. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word, as it is something that does revive our souls. And so, Lord, would you do that today? Would you be with us as hearers? to renew our hearts. Would you be with Mason as he preaches? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. As Jim mentioned it, my name is, is Mason. I serve as a pastor at the Met here in town. Um, I'm, a, I'm a relatively new arrival to Ottawa. It's been less than two years for my wife and our, our two kiddos. Our second we actually had here in the city, so we've got a real Canadian in the family now. Um, my wife and I, and, and I visited Ottawa, the area, before we committed to moving to uh, the, the city to serve at the Met, and we, we went to a little ice cream gelato place called Stella Luna, and right next to that saw, you, some of you are nodding your heads, this is a tasty little place, we saw a little um, rooster's emblem and a, and a sign that said Resurrection Church, and we just knew nothing about the, the context of the city, so did a quick Google and thought, oh, look at that, a little PCA church here in town, um, that's encouraging the other brothers and sisters who will be able to, to partner alongside, and little did I know how true that would be. Jim is right. I've been able to get to know him and, and Ben, mostly through basketball, um, but in time, I've been able particularly to recognize, as I've known Ben a, a bit longer, his, his wisdom, um, his, his insights. I've been extremely encouraged by him and the ministry that he's uh, doing here amongst you, the ministry that this church is, is partaking in here in, in Ottawa and in church planting not only in, in our city, but in the country as a whole. I'm very, very grateful for it. I would love, um, just in light of the way that David closes his prayer, if we could bow once more for a brief prayer to, to our Father. Lord, as we look to your word, we ask that you would um, nourish our hearts by it, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of, of our hearts would be acceptable in your life, that you might teach us of the innocence and blamelessness that you give us through your Son, Jesus Christ, it's in his name I ask all these things. Amen. I, I mentioned it. Susan and I have two children, a, a three-year-old and a 22-month-old. Our, our three-year-old just turned the corner on three last month. So we are really learning the, the beauties of his personality. He is um, an inquirer. He asserts and he questions a lot. He's constantly demanding our attention and what I assume he's, he's gathered from either his mother or, or myself, is um, he's, he's got this thing when he's nonstop talking, or he interrupts us, and he's, he's are you listening? Are you listening, Dad? And I, you know, he's talking to me like he's my boss or something. He thinks he is. And it's cute because he hasn't cultivated his L's or his R's yet, so he says, Daddy, are you listening? Are you listening, Daddy? And I think that is the question of, of Psalm 19. Are, are you listening? This is a psalm whose... Um, which, which main thesis is, God speaks, 
These are the ways he speaks. This is how he speaks. This is why he speaks. God speaks. Are you listening? And we see here, it's, it's broken up in your bulletin to even see some of the, uh, the breakdown itself, that God speaks through creation. God speaks through scripture, his written word, and that both of these point us to, to God's greatest revelation, his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to reread verses 1 to 6 here again for us, just as we consider how God first speaks through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy, it's rising from end of the earth, from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So here is David, and these, these first six verses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inviting us to consider that, that the world that we inhabit, the, the solar system that we spin around in, the, the galaxy that we, but, that we are but a speck within, the universe that we can hardly fathom, that all of these things speak. Though their voice is not heard, their voice reaches every year on, on the planet. And I think even in our, our postmodern, secularizing context, mo most of us would agree um, that there's, there's something about the world, about the stars, about the skies that does speak to us. Um, I, I'll try and prove it this way. Why do people go to the beach? If I were to, your friend, you knew me, and I invited you to travel at least 500 kilometers, to spend four or five days sitting in the sweltering sun, you'd probably say no. But if I sweetened the deal, I said, look, that's not great, but there are a million, maybe a billion, very small, very hot rocks that you sit in called sand. And sand gets all over you, gets in your shoes and in your sheets somehow and in your shower and even on your way back home, you're gonna open your bag and you're gonna find some of that sand. Again, not very alluring. But then I said, but wait, wait, wait. There are going to be thousands of people there who you don't know. Many of them are going to be playing very loud music that you probably don't like. There's nothing enticing about these things, is there? But why do people go to the beach? So right at the end of that sand is an ocean. Water is as far as the eye can see and as deep as the mind can imagine. We stand before something so massive, so transcendent, so distinct from us because it, it speaks to us in a certain way, doesn't it? speaks of, of power and danger, of, of color and of beauty, of, of serenity and refreshment. And, and maybe you aren't a beach person, but I think the logic still stands. Why do people travel to Banff or to, to BC or to PEI or to islands or to volcanoes or to deserts or to seas? We're, we're drawn to, we're intrinsically drawn to seeing the magnificent, to stand before the breathtaking, to hear creation speak. And what Psalm 19 is telling us it's not that creation literally speaks, but that sense of transcendence that we have, that, that we perceive when we're soaking in it, is actually the transcendent creator speaking to us. The, the natural realm is pointing always to its supernatural master. And it isn't just the, the fact that God speaks through creation that David emphasizes. Um, David emphasizes specifically what God is saying through his creation. What, what he declares. Look at verse 1. When, when we look at the stars, we're able to perceive, if even only a fraction of, but we're able to perceive the glory of God. 
We can, we can listen to the handiwork of God spoken through his creation. The creation is, is singing the magnificence of God. Nature is screaming at us, this is not an accident. This is craftsmanship. This is a brilliant being who's wove purpose and beauty into every molecular particle of the universe. Nature's wanting us to, to listen. And so what are the, the implications of that? I've got three short and easy ones. The first of which would be to listen. Listen to God's voice in creation. And our... Um, Hurried culture, made efficient and easy by technology. I think we've become, in many ways, distracted from the glories of God's created order. And, and what would be wise is soaking in it. It, it reveals the glory of God, sitting in, uh, listening to, mulling over, receiving God's creation. And maybe you're thinking, well, I can't quite afford a trip to Vance, you know? Um, the, the beauty of it is, is that we don't need to travel far to consider the intricacies and excellencies of, of God's creation. This afternoon, it's supposed to be a beautiful summer day here in Ottawa. We are, we are able, as we exit this building and go about our, our Sunday afternoons together, we're able to look up into the sky and see a, a ball of gas that's 150 million kilometers away from here that 1.3 million of our Earths could fit inside of. Canada is 2% of the Earth's surface. And so there's something that I can walk right outside, look up and stare in. That I, it, it's so large. It's so powerful. It's so magnificent. I can't even comprehend it. I can do it just by looking at it, though I shouldn't look for, for very long, right? You can see cumulonimbus or cirrostratus clouds and consider the, the genius of God's provision through the water cycle. You can see one of the 300, plus, 300 billion plus trees that exist in Canada or the 450 bird species that are native to Canada. David's helping us here, showing us that there's wisdom in, in slowing down, observing creation, because in it we can see the glory of God. Second implication would be distinct but not too distinct, um, is, is we want to be people of God who, who enjoy creation. I point this out because I, I think we can tend to, in our Protestant circles, we can um, emphasize, rightly, the, the cross-carrying aspect of Christian faith. And it, it needs to be emphasized. We need to make sure as brothers and sisters, we know what the, the pilgrimage we're called to looks like. But oftentimes, we can distort that in a way that, that robs us of having joy, of partaking in the beauties of what God has given us, of, of enjoying those gifts from him. But Christians are not dualistic beings that see this planet as something burning to be left behind. No, this is, this is God's good creation. It's meant to be stewarded, cultivated, until God redeems it completely in eternity. And, and so, you know, look with me at what David's doing here in verses four, four to six. This is a man after God's own heart. He's writing poetry about the wonders of the sun's path across the sky, providing light and warmth to all. I think this is something that's unique about being a Christian. We are able to enjoy a, a good bite of food, a, a dip in the lake, at the cottage, a breeze on the front porch, as if they were fine works of art. Because that's what they are. They're, they're handiworks of a creator. I mean, you go outside of a, a Christian worldview, and what reason do we have to enjoy things if it's all going to burn and be forgotten? But in Christ, there's this 
gift of creation to be stewarded, to be enjoyed. And so we will be wise and faithful people in doing it. The same way that we could be moved by a symphony, we can be moved by God's comp- uh, composition of, of his creation. That, that inevitably leads to the, the third implication, which is very, very important, um, to, to praise God for his revelation in creation. We can only really fully enjoy the, the splendor of God's created order when we're praising him for it. C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here, writing about the distinction between um, gratitude and adoration. He says this, he says, gratitude exclaims, how good of God to give me this. But adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And what Lewis is getting at is this. It's one thing to enjoy creation as something given by God. It is another and higher thing to enjoy God because of his creation. So we'll be wise and faithful saints to do our best in um, stewarding, receiving, enjoying, praising him for the creation that he's given us. God's, God's counseling us through the writing of David here to see that he is speaking to us through it and he is eager for us to hear his voice. But thankfully, creation is not um, the only way God speaks. David points out in verses 7 to 11 that God also speaks through Scripture. Let me read it again for us, get our minds thinking about it. The law of the Lord, verse 7 starts, is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So first in those verses, I want you to notice the nouns there. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. These are, these are synonyms. All, all meaning, uh, conveying the same thing, all referring to God's revealed will in the written text. In, in, in David's context, he's, he's referring specifically to the Torah. But as New Testament believers, we're wise to read this prayer in light of all scripture, all in inspired, written, recorded versions of God's word in the Old and New Testaments. Because in reading scripture, we hear his voice. And, and David here is, is reflecting on this blessing. He talks about the nature of God's scripture, the, the power of God's scripture, and the value of it. First, let's, let's look at the, um, the nature. Verses seven, eight, and nine refer to, to God's scripture as, as perfect, as pure, as clean. And just take a, a moment, reflectively, to think about how paradoxical that is to the world that we inhabit. Perfect, pure, and clean. Think about the cultural waters that we swim in, the air that we breathe. Scripture, oppositely, it's unstained by wrongful motive. It's unhindered by insufficiency. It's, it's unmarred by sin. It's unpolluted by the byproducts of this world. Now, you and I, we're, we're capable of, of mishandling, of wrongfully applying, of offering a tainted version of Scripture to ourselves and to others. But Scripture... Is, is not capable of falling short. It's untainted even by my sin. And it doesn't mean that it's exhaustive. Scripture does not tell us everything about everything, but it is flawless, perfect, 
never failing to do what God set it out to do. Other descriptors that David uses in 7, 8, and 9, uh, scripture is, is sure, it's right, it's enduring, it's true, it's righteous. To, to be sure of something is to be, to be verified and trustworthy. You can stand on it. To be right is akin to, to being straight. The Hebrew word there really could be used as, as being straight. So, so like, like a level, scripture is, is the measure by which we can determine all that, that is true and good and enduring. It's profoundly helpful, I think, in a world that, that's almost obsessed with the subjectivizing of truth, yeah? It's, it's an important thing for us to consider in our own, our own life. When, when you are in need of guidance, where do you turn first? What's your reflex muscle of where do you go when you're in need of truth? I think I do things like pull out my phone and head to Google. Lots of truth available there. I turn to wise and godly friends who, who know the Lord and who could instruct me. And those are um, great resources to rely upon, but, but neither of which are flawless, are perfect, are fully trustworthy. John Bloom illustrates this by, by telling of a... Um, the fatal crash of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s single-engine airplane in 1999. Experts, after assessing the crash, pointed to a phenomenon called spatial disorientation, which occurs when, when a pilot flies into to darkness or weather conditions that, that prevent them from seeing either the horizon or the ground. So they, they've lost their senses. Their, their sensory perceptions have been made unreliable. What pilots are meant to do in these scenarios is fly by their instruments. They've got these, these navigational tools which are reliable even when their senses are not. And as Kennedy's experience unfortunately proves, to, to fail to do so as a pilot can be fatal. And Bloom pointed to a, a, a spiritual parallel in his own life. He, he writes about flying into a season of such spiritual darkness, such circumstantial turbulence, that, that he, he lost his perceived sense of God, of, of hope, of peace, of what felt like his faith. Listen to what he writes here. In my dark night of the soul, I decided to fly by the instruments, to steer by the Bible's direction until I had enough evidence to determine that it was a faulty instrument. My doubts and fears were only leading me into deeper confusion and darkness, and God's promises had always given me more light than anything that I had ever known. My previous training pointed me to the wisdom of doubting my doubts. It was still hard. I still had to steel myself against the fear, and it took a lot longer than I hoped it would. Many times I fought the temptation to, to ditch the instruments and go with my felt sense of what was true, but I had enough experience and knew enough Bible to know where such sense can lead. Nonsense. So I kept my focus on the instrument panel. Eventually, God's promises proved again to be reliable instruments, and my fears again proved not to be. I didn't crash. God pierced my cloudy darkness with his light, and I'll never forget how he did it. The eclipse ended, and God, the great sun of my life, shone again, illuminating my world. So even in, in darkness and confusion, this is a great gift for us, church. God gives us instruments to trust his, his speaking to us in his scripture. And what David is writing here and what John Bloom is attesting to here is that these instruments, they're unfailing. They're a sure and steady guide. They are trustworthy if even the world is screaming at us. No, they're not. 
And even, even if we're not in a, in a trying season at this time, as we consider our daily rhythms, what, what patterns shape our life? When we wake up, when we lie down to sleep, when our minds shift into neutral, what, is, what does our diet consist of? What are we intaking? Is it, is it primarily the world's wisdom that we digest, which might change tomorrow with a, a new cultural tide? Or is it the wisdom of God, which is steady, enduring, tested, and trustworthy? And, and all those adjectives are just reflections of God's character, right? So it makes sense that you would see these descriptions in Scripture. But there's one more thing in, in 7 to 11 that I'd, I'd like to point out about David's portrayal of the nature of Scripture. It's that um, God speaking through Scripture is relational. Look there again, verses 6 to 9. Notice, if you can, comb over it with your eyes. What, what verse, or what word, excuse me, occurs twice in every verse? The law of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, fear of the Lord, rules of the Lord. That, that capital L-O-R-D, as you likely know, is, is referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh, that, that engaged him in relationship with his covenant people. So while David is, is considering the loveliness, the purity, the enduring nature of Scripture, he's sure to emphasize here um, the, the loving God behind it. Scripture is not a to-do list, meant to be knocked out before lunch or by Sunday afternoon. It's an invitation to commune with the God who speaks and the God who listens to those to whom he's committed. There's, there's glory to be grasped in that. So just as the stars proclaim the glory of God, so does God's relational speaking with us. But David doesn't only de describe Scripture in those verses, he tells us what it can do. What it, what it brings into the life of those who receive it, who obey it, who walk at, uh, in it. Again, looking at, at 6 to 9, we see that, that Scripture can bring several things, says David. Life, it, it's reviving the soul right there in verse 7. Wisdom, making wise the simple in the second half of that verse. In verse 8, it says that God's Scripture brings joy, rejoicing the heart and illumination and lightening the eyes. Verse 11 tells us that Scripture helpfully brings warning. By them your servant is, warn, is warned, and reward, keeping them, there is great re reward. So it's no surprise then that, that David muses over the inestimable worth of the Scriptures there in verse 10. More to be desired than gold, more than honey. How, how much money would a resource that can refresh the soul and recalibrate perspective be? What, what could be more delicious than a, a meal that gives you discernment, sobriety, and vitality? David is singing of the divine nature, the, the supernatural power and the incalculable value of Scripture. And he's exhorting us to, to desire it, just as he does. And yet, though God speaks through creation perfectly, declaring his glory... And through Scripture, he brings life and wisdom and joy and reward to those who receive it. We read in, in the end of this psalm, verses 12 to 14, that there's, there's still a problem at hand. There's an issue that, that still needs to be addressed. Who can discern his errors, David writes? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what David's saying is, is he's speaking to God. This is a recorded prayer, right? Even though you speak, God, I have this listening problem. And the, the short version of it is, well, I, I don't listen. You show me your magnificence in the stars, how worthy you are of my obedience. You lay out for me straight lines to walk within, but I presumptuously, I, I step outside of them, I disobey, I turn from you. And furthermore, David's not just admitting imperfection here. That's, that's very common in our day and age to admit no, nobody's perfect, we all agree. David goes further. He's saying, I've got, I've got sins that are so common that they're ruining me, but I can't see them. Derek Kidner, the commentator, helps us here, pointing out that those, those hidden faults um, recorded there in verse 12, uh, David, David is admitting that they might not be hidden because they're so small. They're not just, you know, oopsie accidents. What, what, what Kidner suggests is that they are, they are too characteristic even to register. David's blind to certain sins in his life because he's, he's calloused to them. They're, they're such a common reality in his life that they're imperceivable to him. And I think every one of us individually and every culture has, has sins that we see as more acceptable than others and that we are blind to, and we could spend a whole bunch of time unpacking those, discussing those with one another, but that's not the thrust of what David's getting at here. What David is praying, he's saying, I'm, I'm helpless. I've got this issue. God, I, I praise you for making yourself known to me in creation and in your word, but I've got this issue. I don't listen. I don't obey. I don't take it to heart. I don't consume it fully. I don't cherish it as the gift that it is. We're helpless. And David wisely turns to God for help. There's a, an old, lovely Anglican prayer. I'm sure many of you will know it, and many of you will have prayed it. It reflects a bit here of some of what David's prayer does. It says, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. So you can see David here saying, teach me the depths of my sin, Lord, because I don't even know them. G give me the innocence and freedom I need from the reign of sin, Lord, because apart from you, I don't have it. Make me blameless and acceptable in your sight, Father, because on my own, I'm guilty of great transgression, he says. And, and why can David pray these things? Look at the very final words, the last line of this psalm. What, is, what does David call God, my, my rock and my redeemer? His source of protection from sin and his source of redemption from sin. And we as Christians... We can, we can join David in this prayer with an even greater understanding, can't we? An experience of God as, as rock and redeemer. The, the first verse of the book of Hebrews reads as following. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, largely referring to what would have been the Old Testament scriptures. The author goes on and says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the, the author of Hebrews is teaching us that God's greatest revelation is through his son, Jesus Christ. 
Michael Kruger, uh, a professor at one of the Presbyterian seminaries down in the States, says that, that this verse is, is proclaiming that Jesus is the fullest, final, and ultimate revelation of God. So what we have in, in Psalm 19, David is praising God for speaking through his creation. The author of Hebrews introduces us to Jesus Christ, the creator. In Psalm 19, David relishes hearing, meditating on, mulling over, being established by God's written word. And in the Gospel of John, we meet Jesus of Nazareth, the living word, to whom he says in John 5.39, John 5.39, all other written words of God point toward. In Psalm 19, we see David ask for God to, to redeem him. He, he, he praises God for what he's been given, but he sees he's not the perfect steward that he ought to be. He turns from it. He is guilty in sin and therefore of uh, the penalty of sin, which is death. And so he comes to God and said, make me blameless. Redeem me, protect me. But on the cross of Calvary, as we sang about together this morning, Jesus Christ purchased redemption from sin for those who trust in him. There's this rock and redeemer to whom David was praying, not fully manifest, but on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, we have joy to receive, to enjoy, to lean on, to trust in as God's greatest revelation in Jesus Christ. God, God sings through his creation. He, he speaks perfectly and, and powerfully to us through his scripture. And he speaks finally, ultimately, most fulfilled through the immaculate birth, the, the sinless life, the selfless ministry, the sacrificial death, and the death-destroying resurrection of Jesus. Let's cherish that invitation to listen to the word as we go about our weeks, as we walk in our world, receiving the gift of creation, the, the truth of scripture, never thinking that on our own we'll be perfect stewards of it, but always leaning on our rock and redeemer who does redeem us from our sins. Let's turn now to finish our time uh, considering Psalm 19 in a word of prayer to him. Father, we do thank you that you didn't create with just efficiency in mind, but you created with glory in mind. And so woven into the smallest, into the most cosmic entities are portrayals of your glory. As we go about our week, our lives, would you help us to be people who listen, enjoy, and praise you for that? We thank you, Lord, that um, though you've spoken through creation, that you've given us your written word, that you've come to us in relationship, and you've, you've inscribed through flawed people, flawless words that point us evermore to your son, Jesus, the living word. We thank you for his redemption, for his protection, and we thank you that you gave us this Psalm of David to consider the, the gifts that you offer to us, would you help us receive them with joy that we might be made light, free, alive by the power of the Spirit. It's in the Son's name I ask it all. Amen.